lifted some stones Saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter. We welcome you tonight. Uh, if you want to get your friends to watch the show, tell them to go to www.bornagainmormon. They can go to the TV shows, click on Watch the Show Live, and they can watch it through streaming video anywhere in the world. We have a full house tonight, and i got to read the names quickly. Are you ready? From the Transitions Group. Jeff, Joe, Melissa, Eileen, Ginny, Justin, Tim, Matt, Michael. Then we have Reed, a faithful viewer. Eric, a good friend. We have Anna, uh, Rocio, I hope I said that right, and Rodrigo. And then we have a special shout out to our friends in Park City, Benjamin, Matt, Noah, and Jacob, who are Allison and Eric's fine boys. Uh, God bless you. We also shout out to George, a guy I met at the airport last week. Hope you're transitioning well. There's a group you might look at if you're interested. My friends, the Sheltons, thank you for your support. Those of you who have ordered the books, our many thanks. We pass it on. The Prayer Warriors and all of those of you who have uh, supported us in so many unseen ways, especially with your prayers, we thank God for you. Uh, Sarah Casper, happy birthday to you. Born in 1979. Denny Ermel, our station manager, happy birthday to you. Born in 1879, just kidding, Denny. And uh, we have a Heart in the Church coming up this April 16th. It's a Monday. It's in Logan area. We hope you can come. Everybody's invited. It's at the First Presbyterian Church on Center Street. Uh, bring your friends. Any denominations are welcome. We'll have an open Q&A and a little talk. They're always fun. Truth Seekers. If you're interested in another Mormon support group, people looking at the religion relative to biblical Christianity, Truth Seekers meets at The Rock tomorrow night, www.truthseeker333 at comcast.net. All right? So uh, check that out if you're interested. Uh, Heart in the Park 2007. We had a rollicking good time last year. Uh, worship, food. Uh, open microphone, a great time for your family. Um, I'm going to show you a brief clip. Uh, uh, hopefully they can run that. Uh, some friends of mine who are going to come up and play from Southern California. One of the few bands that will be up and you're going to like them. Let's roll it. You don't need drugs and you don't need booze. If you got Jesus, you just can't lose it. You jump up for Jesus. Jesus, jumping for Jesus, you can't go wrong. Two old ladies living in a shed, one will be taken, the other one left. God's jumping for Jesus, jumping for Jesus, jumping for Jesus, she can't go wrong. Yeah, jump, jump, jumping for Jesus. Hey, uh, Jumpin' for Jesus, it, they, these guys, they rock the house with great music. They do all the old Christian hymns with kind of a rockabilly swing theme. Good friends of mine, Ernie and Michelle, they'll be coming up to Utah on July 8th, 2007 at Sugar House Park. We're going to keep you informed over the next few months, but there's only 90 days till that. Set your calendars. It's a revival. Bring your friends, and we will be there all day praising the Lord, getting to know each other. It'll be a great time. Okay, we are adding something to our website if you're interested. It's going to be Andy's Movies Review. Andy is an actor that I know. He's been in a lot of movies, and he knows films really well. We're going to add this page to the website. 
and he's going to cover a few films that are going to be recommended for Christians only. And so if you're interested in good Christian film, he'll list them up there. And his latest two picks are Facing the Giants and The Nativity Story. You've probably seen them. If you haven't, he recommends them, gives them his AAA rating. You can check that out on the website. Also, we've had questions about recommending churches. Just know, if we don't recommend you, it's because we probably haven't been out to see you. And we're trying to get troops out there to go visit the churches, and when they do, we'll put you on the church recommendation list. Okay, listen, lately on our blog, we've had a lot of complaints that are reading something like this. Quote, Sean attacks the Book of Mormon, but look at the mistakes and problems with the Bible. Why does he think he can attack one book and then place his faith and trust in another one like the Bible? I'd like to comment on that uh, for just a second. First, for those of you who try to make an attempt of comparing the evidences that are around for the Bible to the Book of Mormon, you're just being asinine. You're just being ridiculous when you think about it. Okay, The Bible uh, is supported by uh, archaeological, it's supported by linguistic, it's supported by genetic, it's supported by cultural evidences. The Bible has viable manuscript evidences for it. The Bible uh, has places that you can visit. Imagine that. You can walk along the, the Sea of Galilee. You can see different villages. It's, it's just amazing that something like that could exist. And um, there's entire people groups that base their entire religion off the Bible that are still there. We have the Babylonians. We have the uh, Chaldeans, sort of. We have the, um, we have the uh, Jews. We have Christians. We have Islam. All base something off the Bible. So um, you don't want to take all the biblical uh, utterances that have come from the Bible and that have been proven through the Bible over time and all those evidences and compare them to the Book of Mormon, which has none. None. Okay, remember that. When they have some, then, when we start, then you can make those comparisons. But as of now, there are none. All right. So please don't write those things on the blog and say, I have no right to make the comparison because they're equal as far as their supportive evidence. It's just not right. Making the comparison is like taking an asthmatic kazoo player and, saying, and likening that to the New York Philharmonic. That's the, equivalent. That's the equivalent of what you're doing here, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, as far as evidences and everything else. So don't do it. Last week, I inadvertently skipped a page of notes when we were talking about the Moroni visits. I skipped visit number 13. What visit number 13 was, was Joseph Smith was invited to go from Pennsylvania to New York to the Whitmer home to finish translating the Book of Mormon. He didn't want to take those plates on the cart with him to New York and so he asked the angel Moroni to come and take them for him. The angel Moroni appeared and he, now I used to think when I was a member of the church that he kind of dissolved the plates and, and then he made them reappear in a different place like, like you might be able to do, like he did when Joseph set them down and then put them back in the ground. But no, uh, what happened was Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer were on a cart going through the prairie to New York and they saw a man carrying a, a knapsack that looked heavy. And David Whitmer looked at him, and, and then he looked away for a second, and he said, what's going on? And they talked to the guy, and he said, I'm going to the Hill Cumorah. And David Whitmer says to Joseph, what's this about? When they looked back, the guy vanished. He disappeared. And Joseph said, that was the angel Moroni. So apparently, according to that story, the angel Moroni had to lug those things between uh, Pennsylvania and New York. And that's, that's not me. I mean, I laugh because it's kind of funny, but that is church history on how the whole thing went down. I missed that in my notes. Apologies. Okay. Two weeks ago, my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to visit an LDS ward, and it was their ward conference. And after an hour and a half of the meeting, uh, I kind of got a good summary of what was going on still. And I just want you to know that the theme of the ward conference was, quote, from a Gordon B. Hinckley talk given October 1991. This was two weeks ago. The quote is, our safety lies in the virtue of our lives. Our strength lies in our righteousness. That's a quote from the prophet of the church. And when people ask, what are the differences between Mormonism and Christianity? Isn't Mormonism Christian? A quote like that, basing an entire conference off a quote like that, is completely antithetical to the Christian view of what we are. If we go to 1 Corinthians 3, we can read in verse 20 that 
Again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. And then if we go to 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the Christian view. Our righteousness lies in his righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own apart from Jesus. Our strength lies in his strength, not ours. There is a, one of the fundamental differences in theology between the LDS perspective and the Christian. So a female ward member who I've known since I was probably 11 or 12 years old got up, she gave a prayer, and she said literally, I quote, and we know, Heavenly Father, that we have our safety in the prophet Gordon B. Hinckley. That is a quote from the prayer. It broke my heart. We're going to begin tonight's show uh, with a prayer, and then we'll get right into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this station. We thank you for our camera people and our operators and for the viewers. Help me to say the things you want me to say, and that we'll be able to have a good dialogue. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to uh, preface these comments with a little bit of a disclaimer. It might cause several of you to turn to uh, happy days or something right now, but uh, this is a little bit dry. The stuff I'm going to present right now is a little bit dry. I have to get it on tape because as far as a whole, it's important stuff. And I hope, hopefully I won't put you to sleep, but it's some things that need to be covered for you to understand the Book of Mormon. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The first things that help contribute to the context of the Book of Mormon. Now remember the LDS say that Joseph got the content and context of the Book of Mormon from golden plates. My position is that he took it from a variety of different areas and those include the political themes found in early American republicanism, the autobiographical elements from Joseph Smith's personal life, an assortment of after-the-fact historical events that are recorded in the Book of Mormon as though it was recorded before they happened, like Columbus discovering America. That's in the Book of Mormon. There's several historical events that are written in there as though it was happening beforehand. A variety of popular religious issues, a Unitarian and anti-Trinitarian uh, doctrine refutations, anti-Mason uh, rhetorical devices. The Bible is used and quoted extensively and literally in the Book of Mormon, though the Book of Mormon was supposedly written in a language before many of the biblical languages were formed or known. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. Apocryphal writings, an assortment of 19th century geographical locations are borrowed from Joseph Smith's maps that were available to him and put in the Book of Mormon. And various literary elements are put in the Book of Mormon. All of those things combined help us to see where the context came from. I'm gonna paint a picture for you uh, over the next few weeks about the contents using these elements and tonight we're going to build the frame of the picture and we're going to stretch the canvas across it to get ready to start putting the background and everything else that are going to paint a portrait for you. But tonight we got to do that rough stuff of building the frame and putting the canvas on it so that you'll understand. Now many political historians have seen Aristotle as the founder of Republican thought and um, from Aristotle, Machiavelli and James Harrington and the English revolutionaries, they took Aristotle and they took his thoughts and they kind of molded it and gave us a little bit rougher element of it. And by the time the American revolutionaries took this, this thought of republicanism, it boiled down to kind of a simple ideal. And the ideal was that republicanism saw a political for, uh, struggle between vice and corruption, all right? Early America, you're talking 1776 forefathers, saw republicanism as a political stance between vice, uh, between virtue and corruption, all right? And they believed that though republicanism was the best form of government, they also knew that it was very fragile and very difficult to maintain. Where kingships and monarchies were subject to very evil people, and we could see that by the actions of King George in England and, and his, what he did. 
Um, those methods seem to control unruly masses better than anything else. Okay? After the American Revolution in 1776, a tenuous and very frightening newcomer called democracy stepped upon our verdant shores. Now, Joseph Smith was born 30 years after 1776. This stuff was fresh. It was fresh on the minds of Americans, of American families, Republicanism and the Republic and what destroyed it, everything else. It became very apparent very quickly that the greatest enemies to freedom and liberty were tyranny and anarchy, or reversed actually, anarchy and then tyranny. Now just try to remember, those are two enemies that the new republic greatly feared. And they wanted to stop any aspect of anarchy, which is chaos, people, uh, antinomianism, people wanting to do whatever they want to do. And it's also, and tyranny is when you get somebody who decides to take over and, and uh, dominate, a despot, dominate a people and force them to do what they want. Kenneth Wynn, professor at Washington University and author of an outstanding book, I highly recommend it, called Exiles in the Land of Liberty. Exiles in the Land of Liberty, Kenneth Wynn, for those of you who write and ask to repeat that stuff, he wrote, Anarchy, quote, Anarchy reared its head when the rabble, generally men with no stake in society and designing men, people who had ambitions, fractured the body politic unto unrestrained forces. In anarchy, the unruly masses often turn to visionary men. Now, if you, look at, if you look at Germany after the First World War, Germany was decimated, and they were wiped out, and they were in such terrible straits that Hitler was able to take power because the people said, you're our only hope, and they looked to that. So that started because of anarchy, so to speak, and then Hitler stepped in and became a tyrant. This is what America feared. We don't want another king. We don't want another monarch. We want to be able to rule by democratic thought. And they were very afraid of anarchy, which would lead to tyranny. And so we know that a potential despot was absolutely antithetical to early American thought. They did not want it. This is one of the reasons Joseph Smith and his followers of Mormons were persecuted so heavily. They viewed Joseph as a possible tyrant. I'm sure that the fact that he uh, was ordained king of the world and that he rode around on a white horse in a uniform and that he had militias and that he carried swords and all this stuff, I'm sure that didn't help the fact that they viewed him that way. When the object of polygamy came about, they saw him even more as a potential tyrant for the United States, ran for president. So these things helped bring about the persecution the Mormons faced. But at the same time, the Mormons actually believed, what I believe, is they thought they were presenting America with a solution to a decay that was beginning to happen in the, in the United States. That people were starting to turn to luxury and vice and, and these things. And so the Book of Mormon was written, it came out and it answers these things. Hey, we gotta turn back to the virtues of what made America great. And so you have a conflict. Joseph thought he was presenting to America, this is going to keep us from tyranny and anarchy. And America looked at Joseph and said, hey, you're a possible tyrant. And so we had a conflict. All right? Now, um, there were several themes that Americans adopted in 1776 and forward that were, they were borrowed from the Puritans, and they were going to help America stay democratic. And of those themes, one of those was an agrarian approach to living. And agrarian is another word for the land, living off the land, literally, and working the land. Just as the early Americans extolled farmers as being the, the epitome of American virtue, these were men who worked hard, they were industrious, they tilled the land, they used their own hands, so does Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon make every one of his heroic leaders follow this agrestic or this agrarian approach to life. When the great Nephi prophet Alma led people uh, out from under the control of a guy named King Noah, and King Noah was a representative of luxury and opulence. He was always painted fat and he was this, you know, big drumsticks. And, and, and then the other Nephites and Mormon pictures are all painted ripped and strong and hardworking. And, and these images are put throughout the entire Book of Mormon. And, and, and Joseph Smith writes that that Alma 
quote, pitched his tent and began to till the ground and began to build buildings. Yea, they were industrious and did labor exceedingly. Even when the Lamanites, who became the American Indians, according to the Mormons, became um, uh, righteous and followed the Nephite way, they too, the Book of Mormon says, begin tilling the ground and raising crops and raising up animals, and it falls into this agrarian way. Simply being industrious, though, was not enough in early, Morm in early America. Early Americans did not look favorably upon lawyers and merchants and people who preyed upon others to make their living. They didn't like occupations where people could become rich off the pain of other people. And uh, traditionally, they viewed them as leading America to the point where we would fall under tyranny again. Um, in the Book of Mormon, we see the same thing. The righteous Nephites always tilled the earth. The righteous Nephites always worked with their own hands. They did not prey upon anybody else. One of the Book of Mormon leaders, his name was King Benjamin, says, quote, I myself have labored with my own hands that I might serve you, that you should not be laden with taxes. This was a tremendous argument going on at the time in America. And when people read the Book of Mormon, it gave them answers and said, this is a true, the truest book. Joseph described Messiah King Benjamin's son and saying, quote, he did cause his people to till the earth and he himself also did till the earth that they might not be a burdensome, uh, burdensome to his people. Even the religious leaders like Alma says, quote, did not depend on people for their support, but did labor with their own hands. You have to see that in the Book of Mormon, themes of lawyers and merchants People selling things to people that they couldn't afford, went into debt, whatever. They were always a scourge to the Nephites. Always, because they were bringing down the, the fabric of an agrarian culture. Okay? And, and it's, just, it's just a mirror, but it's a tough mirror. I'm not saying that it's, it's an exact correlation. And I know that this can be argued. I am starting with one of the most difficult things that are found in the context of the Book of Mormon. And I'm going to work my way to the easiest. But we're starting tonight with a difficult, and I think it's early Republican thought in the Book of Mormon as portrayed by Joseph Smith. Okay. Uh, every good Nephite, every good Lamanite uh, was not poor, was self-reliant, industrious, a farmer who disdained luxury at the expense of others and was sensitive to the needs of his community and the poor. This was the American ideal. This is a description of a perfect American at that time. All right, there are dozens of Book of Mormon references that attack lawyers and merchants, I won't quote them, for their contribution to the, to the decay of the nation. And um, I'm not going to go in and talk about those because of time. Uh, the Smiths had, a very, had very bad experiences with attorneys in their family, and so those themes come through as well. Hand in hand with the virtue of... Um, uh, hard-working, industrial, industrious people who worked their, with their hands and worked the land was the anti-idea of luxury. Because of time, I'm not going to go into that too, but this theme is recurrent. And what the forefathers feared in America was that if people became rich, they would say, I'm going to forfeit my political views so that I can maintain my wealth and keep my standard of living. And that the more wealthy they became and the more they enjoyed luxury, the more they were willing to say, who cares what's going on politically? Let whatever happened happen as long as I've protected what I've got. And that was completely contrary to what the nation was built on, which was a common good for everybody. Share and share alike, help the poor, work hard, don't get too rich, just get enough and share. And, and this Book of Mormon theme against luxury and the opulence is through and through too. Look at Joseph Smith's family life. Look at the... Uh, the early uh, American Republican ideals, and you'll see these things sifting into this book that was supposedly written on golden plates. There are so many references in the Book of Mormon to fine clothing. There are a whole bunch that when the people begin to be uh, successful, they begin to weave cloth that was exceedingly fine. The people started wearing the fine clothing. They got proud, and they looked down on the poor.
That is a theme that's also in Joseph Smith's personal history, and it's a theme that really wasn't accepted by farmers at the time. The farmers of America, they obviously wouldn't be dressed in the fine clothing. They worked in the soils, and so it was a class distinction that's battled out right there on the pages of this book that came supposedly from Golden Plates. But the big one, and I'm going to finish with this, sorry for the boredom, the big one with this is Joseph Smith's references to secret combinations in the Book of Mormon. And let me explain this. In 1826, there was a guy named William Morgan. William Morgan was a Mason. Now, Masonry up until that time was very popular and strong in the United States of America. They were called kind of the secret government, which was almost a form of secret tyranny when you think about it. And the Masons had popularity and they were well respected. But in Joseph Smith's neighborhood, and this was a huge event, national for as big as the nation was, William Morgan wrote a book and he disclosed what happened inside Masonry. And one day William Morgan disappeared. They didn't know where he went. Later on, they find out that the Masons took him and murdered him and threw him in a, in a lake. And when America heard what the Masons did, the secret society with all the secret things, what they did to cover that murder up, America turned on them radically because they were headed toward tyranny and anarchy. And America was not going to put up with that. By the way, as a little side note, which is absolutely true, William Morgan's wife, Lucinda uh, P., I can't think of her last name, was one of Joseph Smith's first polygamous wives. Okay, so just to tie this in, how close all this stuff was. All right, William Morgan was writing against secret combinations that were hidden, the hidden government in America that would do dastardly things in order to retain their power. Well, guess what? Joseph Smith included uh, these people, these secret societies, all through the Book of Mormon, too. And what did he call them? He called them the Gadianton Robbers. Isn't that, doesn't that sound really, uh, you know, Gadianton Robbers? It sounds so uh, literary. I mean, it was pretty ingenious. Woo, that, and you got to see these dark people skirking about. All they were was a model for masonry in America at the time. The following description could easily be a description of Masonry in America at the time. It's, it's going to take me 30 seconds to read, but listen to what it says in the Book of Mormon about the Gadianton robbers. And then if you know anything about Masonry, tie into what they do and to what Joseph is saying. Quote, they did enter into their covenants and their oaths and they would protect, that they would protect and preserve one another. And whatsoever difficult circumstances that they should be placed in, they should not suffer for their murders and their plunderings and their stealings. And it came to pass that they did have their signs, yea, their secret signs, and their secret words, and that they might distinguish a brother who had entered into the covenant, and whatsoever wickedness this brother should do, he should not be injured by his own brother, not by those who be belong to his band. So what it's saying there is they can do all these secret things, and as long as they know all the secret signs and shakes and oaths and things, they will never turn each other in. They were a secret combination that skirked about these ancient Americas. And it goes on to say that they're allowed to, uh, I don't think skirked about is a word, but uh, sorry. And it, and it says that they were allowed to plunder and steal and commit whoredoms and do all manner of wickedness, contrary to the laws of the land and contrary to the laws of God, and that their wickedness was an abomination that they should be tried. But when they were tried, they were not tried according to the laws of the country, but they were tried according to the laws of their brothers in that group. And that's how they, should, uh, that's how they ran their thing. The irony of this as we go to the phones, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. The irony is that these very things that the Book of Mormon, which was written back in the 1820s, originally castigated and spoke out against, actually became part of Mormonism when uh, the Masonic Temple was built in Nauvoo, and, uh, and then the temple uh, ceremonies and all the things that they borrowed from masonry took place and they just became, like I've always said, Joseph Smith was a great religious synthesizer. He took all this stuff and it just became Mormonism uh, redone. So uh, we uh, end with the Gadianton robbers and uh, in the Book of Mormon as being another evidence that it was replicated in early American history and the uh, Gadianton robbers working with their hands, industriousness, and all these themes that were part of uh, the democratic way 
were simply borrowed by Joseph and put into the context of the book that the Mormons say is the most correct book on the face of the earth. Okay, uh, have a, some emails as the operators are getting the phone. This is from Parker, who says, I think that it is so sad and hurtful to the spirit to uh, get up and fight with people about their religion. Um, he goes on and on and on. I guess the point of my letter is that uh, I started to feel sick and could not watch any more as you started to contend with your LDS callers. I get that often from Latter-day Saints when they come upon the show, uh, who, especially Latter-day Saints who have been full-believing members. When they hear that their sacred beliefs, which were brought to them from a very early age, were wrong, it makes them physically sick. Uh, I want you to know that that sickness can be just done away with through Jesus. That's the point of our message. You can be born again. You can accept him. You can have him be the Lord and Savior of your life. And you don't have to worry about this stuff. This stuff no longer be, uh, controls you. Uh, Jesus controls you, and he's a really good taskmaster. So, uh, I, I, so I highly suggest that you understand. And I also want you to remember that when... When Latter-day Saints think that we're attacking them, that you recall that the first vision, Joseph Smith said, God said that all the, abomination, all the churches were an abomination to him, that all the preachers were corrupt, all of them, and that the, the LDS church is the only true church on the face of this earth, and that the missionaries go around in the tens of thousands around this world knocking on doors and telling people, we have the only truth, and if they have the only truth, then anything else you're following is false, and that is really a slap in the face. And so we're just not going to take it anymore, at least not on this show. All right, we're going to Matthew on line three. Matthew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Matthew? Hello. Hey, Sean. Hey, you're on the air, man. Sean, listen, it's, uh, it's me. I, uh, I first tuned into your show about a year ago, and you sent me a copy of your book, which I thought was really well done. enjoyed it. Uh, I wanted to just kind of make a quick comment. Um, I, I think your message is right on. I, I, I couldn't agree more with it. Uh, I believe the... Uh, the Mormon Church is really, uh, well, I, I think your message is right where it needs to be. But my only problem is, I, I think your 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 way of delivering it, your demeanor is sometimes a little combative and a little, uh, I guess, arrogant. I was just thinking maybe you could try to come across not so self-righteous, but no, I, no I, I'm not trying to be insulting. That's not. That's what not I'm, insulting. You're saying what you think. You're saying but, it nicely, too. But I, but I really do like your message. I think it's important. I think you're doing a great service. But sometimes you just seem a little maybe angry. And I just think if you could tone it down a little bit, maybe you'd reach more of the people that need to be reached because what you say definitely is what I believe. And uh, I just wanted to tell you to keep, keep up the good work and maybe just kind of sometimes you can catch more flies with honey than Okay, Matt, stay on the line for a second. I got to tell you a couple things in relation to that. Okay. When I was LDS, I spent a lot of time learning how to speak with sweetness and to just be the kindest person. And when I would talk in, in sacrament meetings, and when I came to know the Lord, I said, I'm not faking anything anymore. So what you have, like it or not, is what you have is me. I was given this stuff as, I, I mean, I know I don't appeal to a lot of people, but there are other people who think I'm too nice. I'm not kidding you. I can show you the emails. I have to be what I am, and I have to deliver things the way I do it, and I can't pretend to be anything else, or else, you know, it's, I'm just going back to what I was. And so, I'm sorry, Matt. I understand that uh, I rub some people greatly the wrong way, but uh, I'm going to be me, and I'm going to throw out what I got, and, and that's, I, I start with prayer. I pray five times with my family. I pray with our staff. And crew. I do everything I can. And when it, what comes out, that's what I've got, you know? And if, I, I like your prayer that you started. The, I thought it was a very... It's an honest good, prayer. And so I then when I start... Awesome, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just... Listen, you, you, you're preaching to the choir as far as your message goes. I, I, you just think my delivery should be more... In, but my I, family is practicing LDS, temple going, and I, I can't talk to them about, about the church because they, they just won't listen to any anything that might be even close to a criticism, and so right. I've had to kind of just give up and uh, just try to live my life and, and, and do what I think is, is what the Savior would have me do. But and Matt, this is a really important call, because this, I want you to understand this, and this is important for our audience. When we started this show uh, a year and something ago, right, right. Our, our full intention was to be so, I just watched the first show the other day, it was so nice, and not combat on anything. And you know what we got? 
I got people, I mean, I tried to just really tone it. I got people saying, well, we all agree with that. We disagree with that. We're Christians too. You know, that's all great. And so I didn't prod anybody to investigate. And let me tell you a true story. I met, I met a couple, and the woman was so mad at me that she and her husband went on a walk. And she was screaming at her husband about what a jerk I was and just so angry at me for what I was. And guess what? They have come to know the Lord, and they left the church. Anger is sometimes the initial response, and sometimes I evoke that in people, but it might be what they need instead of the soft, sweet, Jesus would have talked like this, because I don't think he would have. I just don't. So it's a good call, Matt. I understand your perspective. I'll try to uh, be less uh, volatile, and on we go. Hey, listen, I, I'll keep watching. I, I enjoy what you're doing. Take care, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. All right, we're going to Tom, who is calling from Ohio, and he's a teenager. Tom, you're on Heart of the Matter. Tom? 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 We lost Tom, man. I'm really disappointed with that. It would have been fun. All right, we're going to the operators, get more up. Um, go to more questions. We've had a lot of emails about this um, DVD that was sent out and our views about what uh, occurred and in fact I'm being told that we have some lines open if you're interested in calling call in um, we had some we have some uh, emails asking about this DVD what do I think of it and I said this on the show before but maybe you didn't see it and I watched the DVD through and through it's the Jesus Joseph DVD and there was a lot of complaints about that and I think these people were trying to spend an awful lot of money I think it has a lot of content that if you're searching or if you're thinking of becoming LDS, you should definitely watch that DVD. If you're thinking of becoming, watch it. Uh, if you are LDS, you can watch it and see what it says. There are a few things in there that I know are going to be very offensive that I wouldn't touch, but they felt that they should, so they did. It's a free country. And, uh, you know, they went and they put it on people's doorsteps, and it made so many people angry. They put it on my doorstep. Well, the Mormons come to our doorsteps. I mean, when are we going to be able to fight, you know, equally? and not be accused of being such terrible people. They go around, they come on the TV, they do all their things, they do their, their little commercials that say all this stuff. Why can't we do the same thing? And so I just think that uh, in, the, in light of their ministry, I think it was a good effort, and we'll see what happens with it. We're going to Adam and Sandy on line two. Adam, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, what's up, Sean? How you doing, man? I'm doing really good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Awesome. Hey, can I give a shout-out to one of your audience members? Sure. Hey, what's up, Timmy? How you doing, buddy? Oh, this is great. <laughs> I thought you were going to propose or something. Oh, no. no. All right, what's happened? You got a question or you just wanted to do the shout-out to Timmy? I got a question, too. All right. Uh, my question is, can I read William Morgan's book? You know what? That's a good question. I don't know. Oh. Uh, all I can say in, in, in kind of a response to it is uh, check out uh, Duncan's book of Freemasonry, written 1826. It comes out with everything that you can find on Freemasonry. But as far as his, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, what's that book again? Duncan? Duncan's book of Freemasonry, and it gives you all the levels of Masonry and everything about it, written in the 1800s, and uh, you're going to get blown away. Are you LDS? No. Oh. I well, was. If you're LDS, you'll really get blown away by it. And, uh, but it's sold in Barnes & Noble. You can go in there. It's a little small book, and uh, it's an amazing read. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks for calling. A good job. I like how blunt you are. God bless you. Thank you. All right. See Bye. You. All right. Yeah, we are going to Larry in Taylorsville, first-time caller. Larry, you're on Heart of the Matter. Larry? Yes. You're on the air. Hi, Sean. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. I uh, I think you just covered some of what I was going to address. I uh, I just I, I was wondering what your feel was about the LDS not uh, really having heard the other side of the story in terms of uh, this DVD that just came out. You know that they feel like they're being picked on, and they don't. I don't think they see that it's it's really a response to the challenge first issued by Joseph Smith. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think they see it as that either. Um, and the persecution complex that the LDS maintain, some of it for good reason, a lot of it not, is really unfounded when you see their tactics in proselyting other people. 
we do the same thing and, and we're called, uh, you know, anti-Mormon. I know, Larry, at the last uh, general conference that they spoke uh, about, you know, not ever being rude or mean to somebody whose beliefs are different than ours and always being kind to everybody no matter what they believe. But yet their doctrine teaches that they are going to, they are going to hell. If they're going to a form of hell, which is a heaven, but they're going to hell if they're not Mormon. When the LDS church says we're not the only true church on the face of the earth, then I think they're going to have a lot of people back off on what they consider anti-Mormon attacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I feel like, uh, one of the things that offends people is um, uh, with the, the true gospel of Christ is that... Uh, have to recognize that they're sinners, and yeah. they have a cancer called called their sinfulness, and it's not just the LDS people, but all people sure. have to deal with that, and we have to face the reality. We have to go see the doctor. We have to um, we have to treat what's going on here, and only the blood of Christ can do that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And uh, when you say you're sinners to the Latter-day Saints, they'll often say, well, I know I sin. I know I'm a sinner, but they don't really see themselves as sinners when standing before God. They see him as their father who is uh, just so loving and just understands their progress and understands their, their sin and Jesus atoned for it and they're going to progress. And So it's a very different view of sin even though they'll admit that they're sinners. Yeah, and I, I guess they, they think that there's a, uh, more than just this lifetime to address that sin. Yeah, they do uh, that as well. I think they do. That might be uh, argued, but uh, really good call, Larry. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Valerie, first-time caller in West Valley. Valerie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. First, I just want to say praise God for you. Oh, praise God for you, Valerie. I used to be a Mormon. I was raised a Mormon all my life. I was a straight-A seminary student, and even though I was a Jack Mormon, I defended it with my anger and strife. <laughs> Yeah, the Jack Mormons, they defend it pretty well. Oh, they defend it hard and hardy. Yeah. Um, the reason I'm calling, other than a lot of things and what brought me out, actually, um, a man by the name of Don Francisco's music huh. brought me out. That and some friends who made some very serious bets about nothing I believed was in a list that they made. I, could, could I, I couldn't find in the Bible. Huh. And then they forgave me the $500 when I couldn't find it. Huh. But um, <laughs> the thing that got me was I read the Journal of Discourses, and I couldn't even get through the first book, and I knew it was wrong. And I think if most LDS people would just sit down and read their Journal of Discourses, they would have extreme doubts about their profit. Yeah, they would. Hey, that's but, a great um, call. Thank you so much, Valerie. My question is oh. this. The Blood Atonement Act. Yeah. With all the blood that was spilled in this valley and, and uh, throat slitting that went on and, and um, the Mountain Meadow Massacre and, and uh, with the ch marrying children at the age of not as young as nine years of age, why didn't the federal government ever get involved in that? Well, they did. Uh, 1890, they started saying, you know, hey, we're going to cut out the two twins of barbarism, one being slavery, the other being polygamy. And they stepped in and said, first, you're not going to be a state. And second, we're going to throw all you polygamists in jail. And that's when, uh, after a period of time, that's when, uh, was it Wilford Woodruff? No. Was it Snow? I can't remember which prophet came up with the revelation that polygamy was to stop. Oh, that was Brigham Young. No, it wasn't Brigham Young who came up with the manifesto. Oh, Lorenzo Snow. Lorenzo Snow came up with the manifesto no more. But there's a whole side issue to that. And since we're covering church history, we will get to all that stuff about polygamy and Mountain Meadows Massacre as we move forward. Cool. All right. Hey, thanks for calling. You're welcome. All right. God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Steve, first-time caller on line two. Steve, from Salt Lake City, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, good talk to you, Sean. Good talk to you. You too. Um, well, first of all, just uh, one thing, the last caller, she was wondering which prophet it was that made the manifesto against polygamy. Yeah. Whether it was Snow or Woodruff. Yeah. Woodruff, and uh, it was Woodruff. Wilford Woodruff. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was. Oh. Uh, 1896, I believe. Oh, but excellent. That's just, uh, that's not the point. The question I had for you, you were talking earlier about, uh, obviously, the Book of Mormon and how you believe that many of uh, Joseph Smith's, uh, I guess, surrounding political or surrounding economic uh, surroundings, how he used that to put it into the Book of Mormon. Yeah. To put it into 
the context of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. But um, there's one thing that I noticed, particularly with the Book of Mormon. You mentioned the whole idea of how in the Nephi Book of Mormon they say we're against riches, we're against getting rich, and how you say uh, how it was very similar to the American attitude. Um, you know, being careful about and being worried about getting rich, getting riches, and yeah. uh, one thing though that I find very strikingly that's different between these two attitudes, between the attitude in the Book of Mormon that people have and the attitude that the American people had, was the sense of community in the Book of Mormon. Okay. You see in the Book of Mormon how it's always related and based around community settings. Uh-huh. Whereas, you know, the American dream, oh, I can get it for myself, I can do this myself, I can strive to whatever I want to be. Mm-hmm. And so just my question is for you is, yeah, there seem to be many similar uh, things between the Book of Mormon and U.S., uh, I guess, the U.S. politics to the U.S. attitude at the time. Uh-huh. But, I mean, that's nothing new. This has been through here throughout all its history, where you have this conflicting views of community versus I can do it myself. Yeah. It seems to be in the Book of Mormon, it seems to be different when, oh, it's this community. I can, we, we can pull together as a community. Yeah. Later, Joseph Smith and the Mormons, they later tried to attempt that in Missouri, in Kirtland, and yeah. in Nauvoo. And yeah. uh, uh, it worked out to some various degrees in various uh, settings. But uh, what do you what do you think about that? I think I think it's a great point. I think it's a, a great point. I think it's timely. I think it's pertinent. My answer to it may not be correct. Uh, I think you're uh, absolutely right that there was a difference between the communal uh, desires of Mormonism and the uh, individualism of uh, America at the time. But what I will say is, is I think that the answer lies in Joseph Smith's uh, needs. I think that he loved people. He loved community. Obviously, if you're taking on more than one wife and you're, building, and you're sealing people to other people and Brigham's being sealed to Joseph's old wives and, and everybody's trying to build this community here on earth that will be sealed together in heaven, community was very important. So I think you're right in that sense, but I think the answer lies in the desires that uh, Joseph had and how he saw the children of Israel and how they were unified as a people and how important that was for uh, religions to carry on and be successful. But I may be wrong on that. That's just my thought. I, I think you're right, but I think that, you know, Joseph, he didn't have to reinvent the wheel. He, he would have seen in the Book of Mormon how the Nephites prospered under this system of community. If we can pull together as a community, then we'll have things work out. Whereas if we all just do it every man for himself, then you're going to have some people straggling. You're going to have some people that it may not work out for them. Yeah, I think there are some exceptions in the Book of Mormon to that, uh, but we can talk about that as we get further and further into it. Our audience, I'm not sure, are following you and I, but I would love to talk to you personally on that subject. I think it's a really good point. I would too, anytime. That would be fantastic. Email me and we'll get together. All right, sounds good. All right, take care. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. We're going to, I think it's Stephen again, first-time caller from Salt Lake City. Stephen, you're on Heart of the Matter. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. This is uh, my first time watching your show, first time calling, and I just got to say I love it right out the gate. Oh, good. Um, what, LDS or Christian? Uh, what was pretty much on my mind as I was watching, and you were talking about the correlation between Masonry and um, the LDS Church and the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And I was just wondering if, if this is the first time that anyone has actually decided to sit down and pick it apart at the seams, or has anyone tried before? No, uh, many people have done it before, and uh, that's where I get my knowledge. I am not uh, too original in my thoughts. I just read a lot. And uh, like I said, uh, Wynn's book is excellent, Exiles in the Land of Liberty. I highly recommend that book if you really want to see uh, an examination of it. Also, Dan Vogel's books are very good at that. I think that... Um, Grant Palmer uh, did a great book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. Uh, even Bushman, uh, uh, who's LDS, writes good stuff on uh, touching on that subject. But I think one of the best books you can read is Wynn's book, Exiles in the Land of Liberty. Okay. All right. Well, uh, do you, can you suggest a place I could pick that up? Uh, well, you can go to uh, UTLM, you can go to Utah Lighthouse Ministries, and uh, they will have it. And also, you can read a lot about the ties to Masonry and Mormonism through uh, www.utlm.org. All right. Hey, man, thanks for calling. Thank you. You take care. Have a good night. All right, bye-bye. We're going to Lindsay in Clearfield on line four. Lindsay, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. I was just calling to um, comment on the guy that called earlier and told you that you need to be sweeter. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, 
I was just calling to let him know, you know, Jesus wasn't sweet, and he, the, sometimes the truth isn't sweet. Okay. And he even told the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. I think Jesus, uh, I mean, he was even rude to uh, Herod. He wouldn't even speak to him. He wouldn't say a word. He did different things, and I just think sometimes we just get the wrong idea of what he was like. He, we think he was a pushover. I don't think he was at all. That's a really good point. I appreciate you backing me up a little bit. But Matt was good about it. He was nice. And I don't, he doesn't want to be taken wrong. He was just trying to say that my style wasn't really his, his style. Yeah. Which, Jesus' style wasn't very many people's style either, though, you know? Yeah. We've got to live and let live, right? Exactly. All right. Thanks for the call. Yep. Okay, bye-bye. We have a great call. I can tell you it's going to be a great call right now. It's from someone named Zelf. Uh, first time caller in Salt Lake City, and I want you to know that uh, the name Zelf comes from um, some people showed Joseph Smith some bones, uh, a grave, uh, when he was out in the forest or something somewhere, and he said, this person's name was Zelf. He was a Nephite prophet. He comes up with this whole story about these bones, and so Zelf is kind of a funny name that people use who both pick on the church and are in the church. Like, was Joseph just out of his mind that day or what? So, we're going to Zelf on line three. Zelf, you're on Heart of the Matter. John, what up, man? How you doing? I'm impressed you knew about Zelf. I love your name. <laughs> hey, um, I just want to let you know that it was actually Wilford Woodruff. He must be clammed. Dang it, Zelf got to me again. That's twice I've been called a musty clam. Now, I live by the sea. I do not smell like a musty clam. I'm, this Zelf guy is getting to me. All right, so let's go to Christy in Spanish Fork on line two. Christy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Hey, my husband and I have a question um, about patriarchal blessings. Mm. And we just wanted to know what your thoughts were about that. Hey, Christy, I'm, let me explain to the audience what those are. In the LDS Church, it started back at the founding of the church. Joseph Smith's father was the first patriarch. And what that is, it's a man who's designated to lay hands on the head of other members of the church. And he gives them what's called a patriarchal blessing. And what that patriarchal blessing is, is it's uh, the people who pick on the church would say it's fortune telling. And people who are in the church would say that it's a prophetic blessing that you let, give to somebody and you tell them what their life could be like if they remain faithful. It, sometimes the patriarch will give insights into if they're going to be leaders or if they'll be married or even insights into what they were in the pre-existence. Now, I have a brother whose uh, patriarchal blessing said that he was, uh, gives his whole pre-existent life. It talks about his earth life, and it says he will be here for the second coming of Christ. So patriarchal blessings are really interesting in the LDS community. They are original. They are one of a kind. It's the only church I think that does them. And everybody is asked to get a patriarchal blessing, and you typically only get one, and then they type it up, and you have it, and you carry it with you, and you read it, and it's considered personal scripture to you. Uh, what I think about them uh, is really kind of funny, you know. I, um, one, I think that they are not uh, inspired I, I uh, do think they are based kind of on the idea that the patriarch knows the person or he understands who the person is that they're giving it to him um, and is able to come up with some general uh, ideas about who they are when they're giving it to him. I think that they're interesting. They're very egocentric because you're reading all about yourself. I mean, mine told me that I'm, I'm you know, a, a great this and a great that, and if I do this, I'll have that. I just think that they are something that are a tool that are used in the church, and um, I think people find truth in them, but I think if they're looked at really objectively, you would find that they are sort of like reading an um, astrology. They speak in universal terms, and when you see that you are going to have a stomach problem when you're 40 in your 40s, it's quite likely you will, and then they use that as verification that the thing is true. That's kind of a rough estimation of what the patriarchal blessings are, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, I am LDS, and so I obviously have one. <laughs> so I just, I... Do they ever give bad ones? Um, you know, actually, my mother's is really strange in that it's not necessarily bad. It just, 
doesn't talk about her, you know, how normally, like you mentioned, that it can talk about your family and yeah. maybe things that you might accomplish. Yeah. It mentions nothing. It's totally void of that. And it's almost as if she, it, like there's no insight or inspiration. And um, I think my sister and I struggle with that a lot. So. I, I know that uh, a group of girls went to the patriarch in... Uh, in a city, on the, uh, it's in Huntington Beach, and they compared their patriarchal blessings, which Mormons are not supposed to do, by the way, and they, they were identical. They were identical. I mean, it was, you know, you are from the tribe of this, and you shall be this, and you were, I mean, it's, they were just identical, and they went to the bishop, who I know, this is a true story, and uh, they were identical. But I know they're not all identical, and I know different patriarchs have different skills in communication and say different things. It's just kind of a trippy thing. I like, like to take them all out and read them sometime. Yeah, they're an interesting. Hey, thanks for the call. You're welcome. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Saul on line one. Saul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, brother, what's going on? How you doing? Hey, not bad. Um, hey, I just uh, have a quick question. You're kind of making references between the Masons and the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Are you aware that the Masons do have their own Bible? I didn't know they had their own Bible. You didn't know that? No. Yeah, they do. Hopefully I'm not stepping on any Mason's toes. It's I hope the... not either, man. You could be <laughs> in serious trouble. <laughs> it's called the Colbrin. Really? Yeah, K-O-L-B-R-I-N. Is it, is it a form of the Bible, meaning it's just a different translation? You know what? I flipped through it and read it, and it's really close. Yeah. But it goes into, like, the book of Genesis where it, t it talks about fallen angels. Wow. It talks about the fallen angels actually being aliens. I'm not joking a bit. Dude. You, no, I'm not joking, <laughs> dude. Here's the deal. They just published the book a couple of years ago. Uh -huh. You can go right now to Barnes & Nobles and get a copy of it. it I'll check that. It's K-O-L-B-R-I-N. I'm not, I'm not even joking. And here, i got one more quick comment. Yeah. Um. Where was Jesus Christ between the ages of 18 and 30 physically? Uh, I guess he was in his hometown. I guess he was, uh, you know, a Nazarene, and he was, uh, I, I, I'm assuming. Well, I mean, you're just guessing. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm I mean, guessing. Where, where was he? I, I, I'm guessing he remained uh, there. I don't know. Maybe he traveled abroad. I, exactly, I don't know. Sean. Exactly <laughs> right. Well, I, we don't know. So. No, no, there are people that know, because everybody when he said, keep track, write down everything I say. So what record do we have of where he went? When he, There's 1,300 records. He was in Tibet at the age of 24, living with monks. He was traveling with John, which one I'm not sure. John left ancient scriptures in China called the B-Bible, B-E-E. -E. Yes! It hasn't been translated yet into English, but it's supposed to be in, in, I would say, the next eight months. Hey, man, it's a great call. I can't wait to meet Come to Heart in the Park. I can't wait to talk to you in person. got to do a little research, man. I, I got to do some research. I got to read what you read. You got your uh, stuff No, there. you, you got to know what everyone else in the world already knows. Yeah, I'm trying. Hey, thanks, man. All right, brother. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we got one minute left. I want to give a shout-out to Constantine and Stevie. Stevie's six years old. Stevie, stay close to the Lord. You read his word, you go to church, listen to your dad. If he's a good guy, if he's not, blow him off and listen to the Lord. And uh, let's just keep going. So, uh, listen, it's been a fun show. I'm sorry for the dryness of that topic. Next week's going to be much better because we're going to start getting into more meat of what the contents of the Book of Mormon are. Uh, you can tune in to the Infallible Word for a Bible study, Monday nights at 9.30, Friday nights at 8.30. You can turn into Heart of the Matter at 11 a.m. and watch a replay of this show. And you can go to www.bornagainmormon.com if you want to post a blog, if you want to email us, if you want to look at movie reviews, if you want to um, blog or get a book, we'd love to see you. We'll see you next week here on KTM TV 20, Heart of the Matter. Thank mm -hmm. you.